God loves to reassure his people with outlandish promises. God loves to reassure us with out-of-this-world promises, too good to be true promises. God loves to reassure us with his wonderful, strange, mysterious, and unbelievable promises. He's just that way. It brings God delight to see us encouraged and comforted and strengthened by his outlandish promises. And that's what we'll see in our passage today in Genesis 13. So turn in your Bibles there. God appears to Abram once again to reiterate his promise, to encourage Abram, to lift him up, not to badger him, not to shame him for blowing it in Egypt, not to rub his face in his sin. That's not Jesus. Some preachers try to say that Jesus is like that, that he likes to rub our face in our sin and shame us. He's not that way at all. Jesus loves to reassure his people, his bride. Tell me, what husband, what good husband loves to berate his bride? No one, not a good husband, and not so with Jesus. He shows up to reassure our hearts, to calm our fears, because he's just that kind of God. He's the, if I am for you, who can be against you, God? Hmm, I like that. I don't know about you, but I like that. I'm so glad we serve a God who delights to see his children reassured of his love, reassured of his promises. And that's what he did with Abram. So turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 13, where we will see the, if I am for you, who can be against you, God, in action. But before we see that, We're going to eavesdrop on a really big real estate deal going down on the plains of Canaan. So Genesis 13, look at verse 5 and hear the word of the Lord. After Lot, who went with Abram, uh, and Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents, so that the land could not support both of them dwelling together, for their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together, And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. At that time, the Canaanites and the Perizzites were dwelling in the land. Then Abram said to Lot, Let there be no strife between you and me and between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen. Is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me. If you take the left hand, then I will go to the right, or if you take the right hand, then I will go to the left. And Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere, like the garden of Yahweh, like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zoar. This was before Yahweh destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley, and Lot journeyed east. Thus they separated from each other. Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against Yahweh. So as we saw last week, Abram faced a famine, uh, no rain, no food, no nothing, so he had to go to Egypt, but now he faces an altogether different problem. He has too much, too much cattle and donkeys and sheep and servants, but it's not just Abram who has too much, so does his nephew Lot. They have both been extremely blessed by the Lord. Their businesses have been thriving. 
Everywhere you look, it's donkeys and cows and sheep and servants. And so life is crowded around Casa de Abram. So he and his nephew Lot must part ways because it's a little too close for comfort. Their employees are fighting with each other over whose cow is whose, and so they decide to separate. And Abram very generously offers Lot the first pick. Lot can choose any spot, and Abram will go the other way. So Lot looks east. He sees how green it is, how lush it is. He sees this abundant water supply, how it's basically like the Garden of Eden. And so it's a no-brainer for Lot. He says, Abe, you head west, old man. Now, I don't think Lot is wrong for choosing the spot that he did. He used wisdom. The text tells us it was well watered. It was like the Garden of Eden. So why not choose it? Of course, in writing the book of Genesis, Moses gives us a hint at the trouble that would soon come, i.e. Sodom. And of course, the Israelites living in the wilderness, when Moses writes the book of Genesis for them, they have, by this point, they've heard the stories of the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. So when they hear that Lot chose an area near Sodom, they kind of shriek because they know what's coming. But these parenthetical remarks here about Sodom in verse 10 and verse 13 are not any indicators about Lot's spiritual maturity or how he was greedy or how he was worldly. They are just that, parenthetical remarks for the original audience reading the book of Genesis and parenthetical remarks for us letting us know that Lot would be moving into an area occupied by wicked people. But understand this. Moving to a lush land so that your family and business can prosper doesn't necessarily make you a wicked person. Yes, you might be tempted to give in to sin, but Lot moving into this area is not a moral issue. He simply chose the best land. I mean, wouldn't you? The text in no way tells us that Lot knew ahead of time that this would be a bad move. It doesn't tell us that Lot knew the land was full of wicked people. I mean, come on, any area that Lot chose would be full of wicked people. Any area that Abram chose would be full of wicked people, and it was. You just keep reading the book of Genesis and you find out. Besides, what if Lot chose Canaan the area that Abram ended up in, would that make Abram an unwise and foolish person for heading towards Sodom? No. Wherever they both went, Lot and Abram would be pilgrims in this world trying to be faithful to Yahweh as disciples, kind of like you and me with our neighbors and coworkers and family members who don't know Jesus. We're just exiles here. We're pilgrims trying to follow Jesus as disciples as we are surrounded by people who hate our God. This is discipleship 101. Unfortunately, Lot gets painted as a bad guy for choosing a good spot. But Lot is just being a wise prudent businessman. He wants to flourish at his job. So I don't think the text, I don't think Moses paints Lot in a negative light here at all. You'll hear that when you read commentators and listen to preachers though. Everybody, I mean everybody, every commentary that I read 
threw Lot under the bus for picking the incredibly lush, fertile land that he did. I don't throw him under the bus. And I don't think the text implies that either. And that's kind of important, isn't it? But enough about what preachers and Bible commentators say. What is scripture? What is God's word? What does God say about Lot? That's kind of important too, isn't it? Was Lot sinful for picking this area, living near Sodom and Gomorrah? Well, let's let the apostle Peter weigh in here. Pay close attention to how Peter describes Lot. Listen for the repeated adjective in 2 Peter 2, 7 and 8. And if God rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Hmm. Righteous, righteous, righteous. Distressed by the sexual perversion in Sodom. Tormented by what he saw and heard in Sodom. Hmm. Sounds like a godly guy to me. I think preachers and commentary writers are going to be lining up on the new earth to apologize to righteous Lot. It is Lot's wife who was worldly and will later be condemned by Jesus himself in Luke chapter 17. But Lot... Well, he would be a guy that you would want your daughter to bring home because he was righteous. We owe a lot of apologies to Lot. You'll read people say that because he lifted up his eyes and saw that the land was well watered, that he was walking by sight and not walking by fate. But the text doesn't say that, does it? I had an interaction with someone this past week over that. And they said, well, he lifted up his eyes and saw. So he was walking by sight. He wasn't walking by faith. He was like, but the text doesn't say that. Show me where it says it and I'll rescind. The text does not say that he was walking by sight and not by faith, faith because he looked up and saw. That's kind of important. Lot was just a wise businessman who wanted his farm to succeed. So he chose the best spot. I mean, Wouldn't you, would you open up a coffee shop in the middle of a desert or in a thriving downtown location? Lot is just being a wise businessman. I mean, can't a guy have a successful farm? Can't a guy make good money without being accused of being greedy and worldly? Well, apparently Lot can't because commentators and preachers need someone to throw under the bus. Okay, I got that off my chest. Thanks for coming to my TED Talk. Or my lot talk. I think the bigger picture here is that whatever happens in life, the sovereign God will keep his promise. Whatever people do to us, whatever choices they make, whatever, you fill in the blank. God will keep his promise. God's hand of providence will guide us, each and every one of us, each step of the way. Lot could have gone in the other direction, And Yahweh would have blessed Abram as he settled near Sodom. So it wasn't who picked what land. It was who, capital W, who was going to bless each person in said land. And then would they follow Yahweh faithfully as a disciple. And both men did just that. It's worth taking a moment to talk about God's providence here. Because that's what's driving this whole scene in Genesis chapter 13. It's the providence of God at work. I love what chapter five of the Westminster Confession of Faith says about this. It says, God, the great creator of all things, doth 
uphold, direct, dispose, and govern all creatures, actions, and things from the greatest even to the least by his most wise and holy providence, according to his infallible foreknowledge and the free and immutable counsel of his own will to the praise of the glory of his wisdom, power, justice, goodness, and mercy. That's what's happening behind the scenes here in Genesis chapter 13. Now, allow me to add something to chapter 5 of the Westminster Confession of Faith. God, the great creator of all things, doth uphold, direct, dispose, and govern all creatures, actions, and things, and all business transactions on the plains of Canaan, from the greatest even to the least, by his most wise and holy providence, according to his infallible foreknowledge, and the free and immutable counsel of his own will, to the praise of the glory of his wisdom, power, justice, goodness, and mercy. And you can take that little phrase, and you can put a blank in there for your life. Everything that's happening in your life, God is doing it for his glory. It's his wisdom that is guiding and directing everything in your life. It could be a business deal on the plains of Canaan, or it could be something else in your life. And God is directing and upholding and doing all that. His hands are tied up in everything. His hands are are messy and dirty in your life with everything. He's directing you, everything that he does In this world, he does first for his glory, even when two men are choosing where to put their cows out to pasture. Even something as mundane as that. Something as mundane as, where do you want to live? You pick. If you go that way, I'll go this way. You go that way, I'll go this way. Everything that God does, he does for his glory. Everything that God does in this world is to highlight and spread the fame of who he is. Everything that God does is meant to display the glory of his grace. Everything that God does is meant to stir the hearts of his people so that they, by the spirit of God, may find their joy in his son, Jesus. Everything that God was doing in Abram's life was so that he would be a blessing to the entire world, which now includes you. Think about that. That's what's behind this Genesis 13 land deal. You are behind this Genesis 13 land deal. Yahweh sovereignly directed even Lot's choice of where to live. All of it fit into his plan, and all of your life fits into his plan. And there's something you can get from that, and it's called peace. Knowing that you serve a God who upholds, directs, disposes, and governs all creatures, actions, and things can reassure your troubled heart. That's why Jesus said, let not your hearts be troubled. Because of chapter 5 of the Westminster Confession of Faith, because of his providence. Now, of course, our hearts do get troubled, don't they? And when they do, we must remember Jesus' words. We must remember that We serve the upholding, directing, disposing, and governing all creatures, actions, and things, God. And so it turns out the doctrine of the providence of God can actually help your blood pressure if you let it. All this providence was happening on the plains of Canaan in this conversation between Abram and Lot. Now, to be sure, on the surface, it just looks like two businessmen entering a contract and trying to keep their uh, workers and their employees from fighting with each other. But 
Here's what it really was. It was the providence of God working in such a way that Abram would be a blessing to the nations so that you would come to faith in Christ. So that Abram, the man of faith, Galatians 3, 9, could have many sons and many sons could have father Abraham. So really, Genesis 13 is about you if you are united to Christ by faith. This promise is for you, Christian. Okay, back to the text. Look at verse 14. Yahweh said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward. For all the land that you see, I will give to you and to your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. Arise, walk through the length and the breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. So Abram moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron, and there he built an altar to Yahweh. So after they go their separate ways, the Lord appears to Abraham, or Abram, and told him to look around in every direction, and everything that he sees will be given to him and to his offspring. Keep in, keep in mind, Abram's wife Sarai is barren. They have zero children, but somehow they're going to have kids and grandkids and great-grandkids. That comes later in the story when Abram is 100 years old and Sarah is 90 years old. Yes, those two are going to have kids. And so the Lord reiterates the promise that he made to Abram back in chapter 12. Abram would have offspring, so much offspring that it would be like trying to count dust. And the Lord would give all this land to Abram. This land would not be a rental. It is a promise. It is a promise given to all the sons of Abraham by faith and will be fulfilled on the new earth when Jesus returns. Understand that here. This promise to Abram is given to all the sons of Abraham by faith and will find its fulfillment on the new earth when Jesus returns. As Scotty Smith says, thus begins one of the most important chapters in the big story of redemption, which runs through the whole Bible like a doxological drama of grace. Through the unlikely and unsuspecting agent, Abram, God committed himself to gather a people from every race, tribe, and people group to love outrageously, cherish forever, and ultimately plant in the new heaven and new earth. The magnificent future fulfillment of the land promise. All of this pan-national redemption and cosmic restoration is coming to pass, not because of Abram slash Abraham, but because of the one who eventually arrived through the family tree, Jesus, the promised Messiah, Savior, and Lord. Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of every promise God has made. For in Jesus, all the promises of God are an unequivocal, resounding yes. So what's happening in Genesis chapter 13 is nothing short of God purposing to love you outrageously and cherish you forever and ultimately plant you in the new heaven and new earth. 
And people think the Old Testament is boring. No way. People read Genesis 13, they're like, what's that have to do with me? It has everything to do with you. There is an eternal promise from God here, right smack dab in the middle of an outlandish land deal between an uncle and his nephew, an eternal promise from God himself to love you outrageously, to cherish you forever, and to ultimately plant you in the new heaven and new earth. And that ought to be enough truth to sustain you the next time the state of California and its policies drive you nuts. You just remember that one day you're going to own this whole place. This is the inheritance, the new heavens and the new earth. Oh, I can't wait to see California on the new earth. Oh, what's it going to be like? From north to south to east to west, the inheritance belongs to the sons and daughters of Abraham. Why? Because you are a son or daughter of Abraham, united to God's son by faith. Listen, there are perks to being in Abraham's family, if you didn't know that. There are perks to being in Abraham's family. And one of those perks is getting the new earth. Part of the inheritance is that all of this belongs to us now. But it's not just about getting land. It's even more outlandish than that. You get Jesus' heart. You get God. Dane Ortland says, For those united to him, the heart of Jesus is not a rental. It is your new permanent residence. You're not a tenant. You're a child. His heart is not a ticking time bomb. His heart is the green pastures and still waters of endless reassurances of his presence and comfort. Whatever our present spiritual accomplishments, it is who he is. We get to be with Jesus and enjoy him as we enjoy the new earth. What that's going to be like, I don't know for sure, but I like to think about it and dream and speculate and do all kinds. I mean, will bacon just be there? I guess, right? It's just there. I think you just wake up and you're like, there's a plate of bacon. I don't even have to cook it anymore. I don't have to sit there and wait and flip and do all this, have grease pop and hit me in the eye. I just wake up and I don't know what it's going to be like, but it's going to be glorious because we're going to be there with Jesus. So Yahweh shows up to remind Abram of the promise he made to him. Abram can walk through the land. He can stick his feet in the rivers. He can hang a hammock up between two trees. He can plant a garden. He can ground himself in the grass. He can pick an apple and eat it. He can just mosey north, south, east, and west and take in all that Yahweh will give to him and to his offspring, which now includes us. Understand this, you have to read Genesis chapter 12 and Genesis chapter 13 and then immediately jump to Galatians chapter 3 for it to make sense. It's designed that way. Genesis 12 and 13, then you flip over to the New Testament and you read Genesis 3 and you realize, okay, this is what it's all about. The inheritance will be ours because we are sons and daughters of Abraham. And if that warms your heart, then you have just confirmed this truth that God loves to reassure his people with outlandish promises. God's heart beats reassurance. It's the throb of his heart. 
It is the promise-keeping God rushing in to help weak sinners who truly are prone to wonder and prone to doubt and prone to anxiety and prone to fear. And so what God does is he rushes in. He rushes in to give, to comfort, to reassure, not to shame, not to wag his finger at us, not to say, I told you so. He rushes in to comfort, to reassure Listen, this scene here with Abram is a reminder that there is nothing Jesus would rather do than to reassure us. It's why we have the Bible. It's why the Bible is full of promises so that we would be reassured of everything that God says will come true. I mean, the whole Bible is just one big promise from God, one big reassurance from God. Yes, there are laws and commands, But it's not supposed to be read as a book of law, as a book of command. It's a book of promise. It's a book from the promise-keeping, covenant-keeping God. As Alec Motier says, the whole Bible is held together by the word covenant. At its heart, the biblical covenant is about God making and keeping promises to rescue us and establish us as his people. That's it. The Bible is one big promise from God to reassure. So take it up and read. When the next time you read, think, this is a book of promise. God is making promises to me. God is coming now as I read his word to reassure my heart because he loves to reassure my heart. He doesn't, God doesn't want you to open the Bible and think, there's like this big wag, you know, you open it up and like this big finger comes out and says, how dare you? It's not how you're supposed to read the Bible. You're supposed to open it up and read it and say, Jesus What if you promise to me in your word? Comfort my heart. How else does God reassure us beside his word? Well, here's a few. He's given us the Lord's Supper, communion. A bit of a cracker and a swig of juice is all it is. But that isn't all it is. It's assurance that we eat and drink. Can we explain to the watching world how eating bread and drinking juice assures us of his life, death, resurrection, and ascension? No, but it does, doesn't it? They don't understand. I mean, you just take that little cracker thing and eat it, and then you take a swig of grape juice, and your heart is comforted? Yes. I can't explain it, but it's true. And then God has given us songs to sing. He's given given us elders and deacons who can shepherd and care for us. He's given us a church family. He just gives and gives and gives and gives. Why? To get anything back? No. God gives to reassure us. God doesn't need anything from us. Listen, you cannot give God anything that would make him better. He's sufficient in and of himself. He just is. He doesn't need us. He doesn't need our worship songs. He doesn't need our offerings. He doesn't need anything from us at all. He just says, I'm the one who gives because you need everything from me. So why does he give? Just because it's who he is. No one has God's arm tied behind his back and making him cry uncle. He gives, he loves, he reassures out of his own nature. It's just who he is. It comes from his heart. Think about that. God is not doing God's stuff because he's like following this manual at work. All of this goodness that he has stored up for us, Psalm 31 tells us that he has 
goodness stored up for us. All of this goodness that he has stored up for us, that he lavishes upon us, it just comes from his heart, from his nature. It's just who he is. He's the giving God, not the receiving God. He's the giving God. Wow. So don't listen to any preacher who doesn't assure you and comfort you with his preaching. Because there's a lot of preachers out there that just say, shame on you and how dare you. And if you would just obey and stay in line. Don't listen to any preacher who doesn't reassure you with his preaching. Why? Because God's heart is to reassure us. That's what Genesis chapter 13 is all about. So why listen to some mere mortal who wants you to doubt your salvation and live in fear and tell you that you have to earn God's love, earn his favor? You come in here on Sunday morning needing to be reassured of God's love, reassured of God's promises, and reassured of God's gospel, and so that's what I'm gonna do. Because God loves to reassure his people. For Abram, it was hearing the same promises again and again and again. And then for Abram, being encouraged by the Lord to walk the land. As if walking the land would would rub the promise into his soul even more. It's as if Abram would be strengthened to believe the promises by walking all over that real estate. And so what do we do? What can we do to be reassured? We don't have land to walk through. I mean, I guess you can, yes. Go to the beach and, and feel the, the cold water splash on your feet and your ankles and feel the sand beneath your feet and think, yes, this belongs to me because I'm a son or daughter of Abraham. So yes, you can walk the land in that sense. Go do that. But how can we be encouraged to trust God's promises? I could answer that many, many ways because I'm a preacher, but let's just mention a few. Number one, to be encouraged to trust God's promises, worship. Put on some worship music. Let it recalibrate your heart. I, hold an, I heard an old preacher say this once, praise is the plow that prepares the heart for the planting of the promises. Now, he didn't say it that way. Here's how he said it, and I remember it to this day. Praise is the plow that prepares the heart for the planting of the promises. And he just kept saying it over and over again in this sermon. I'm like, That's where I learned my preaching. You get a big idea and you just keep repeating it. It stuck with me all those years. I can't wait to meet him on the new earth one day and say, hey, I still remember that. But it's true. If you're struggling to believe a promise of God, then sing. Put on some worship music. Play an instrument. Praise the Lord and watch it plow the soil of your heart so that God's word can be planted in the nooks and crannies of your heart. Second way to... Be encouraged to trust the promises of God is just fellowship. Get involved in some ministry here at Grace. Join a Sunday school class. Join a Bible study. There's something about being with other believers and having conversations about God, having conversations about his word that can cause your heart to be reassured. I experienced this this past week at our men's Bible study on 1 John. The fellowship and the conversation around God's word lifted my spirits, recalibrated my heart. Don't neglect the importance of fellowship. And then a third thing that you can do is write out some of the promises of God. 
I pull down the calendar on our wall in our kitchen and I'm writing a promise out on every month. Just write a, you know, just throwing caution to the wind and writing over all the numbered boxes. It was my way of walking through the length and breadth of the land like Abram. So I wanted to physically look at each month of 2024 and kind of pray over each month and to think about events that are coming up and I want to rub God's promises into those dates. So it was a simple little thing that I did, but it helped me to be reminded that God is already there. Jesus is already in July 2024. I don't know what my life will be like then, but Jesus is already there. So this is the promise that I just wrote all over the month of July 2024. Matthew eleven twenty eight. 28. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Now, I don't know what July 2024 has in store for me, but Jesus does. He's already there. He's already aware of what will happen. And he promised me that whatever is happening in my life, he will give me rest. So that's me walking through my 2024 calendar and lifting my eyes and seeing that Jesus is there. That's me intentionally focusing on the eternality of God. You see, it's the doctrine of God's eternality that comforted Abram's heart and can comfort ours. Abram could not fathom his future. Okay, he's 90-something years old, and God says, you're going to have kids. And he's like, I can't fathom that. But he could trust the eternal God who was already there in that moment when Sarai is giving birth to Isaac. The Trinitarian God that we serve, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, is a God of timeless eternity. The God who is not limited by time, but in fact transcends time. The God who is unbounded by time. The God who never uses a calendar and doesn't own an Apple watch. The God who always has been and always will be. The God who simply is all the time. God is all the time. All that God is, is, is. Think about that. You wanted to watch the Super Bowl today. Now I'm telling you to think about that statement. All that God is, is, is. This is the God who awaits you and me in July of 2024. And it's this God, Christian, the God who doesn't own an Apple Watch, who is your help. It's this God who came hand-delivering promises to Abram, who would be his help. It's the God of timeless eternity who holds you in his arms. And so the doctrine of God's eternality can comfort your heart. It can help you stop biting your nails down to your elbows. It can help you face the future, face the unknown without fear, without anxiety. Because Jesus is already there. So Yahweh appears and says, I will to Abraham. Three times, I will, I will, I will. This is the calling card of the covenant-keeping God. This is his M.O. This is his knee-jerk reaction. The I am says, I will. And that little phrase, I will, can be the thing that keeps you from going crazy. That little phrase, I will, can help you sleep at night without tossing and turning as you fret over your future. That little phrase, I will, is what Christian hope is founded upon. That little phrase, I will, can get you through quite a lot. Think about it. How many promises in the Bible do you cling to where Jesus says these two words, I will? There's plenty, but let me just read a few. Matthew eleven twenty eight. 28. 
Just read it. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. John 6, 40. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. John 14, 3. And if I go prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. John 14, 14, if you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. John 14, 18, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. I will is the dynamic of the covenant-keeping God. I will is what comes naturally to the great I am. I will, Christian, is what your hope is built on. He's an I will God, not an I might or a maybe or we'll see kind of God. He is the I will God. Understand this. Jesus bleeds promises, literally, yes, on the cross. But if you you prick Jesus, he bleeds promises. This is just his DNA. He makes and keeps promises. In fact, I would argue that it thrills his heart to make and keep promises. Why do I say that? Because the Bible is full of promises. If God grudgingly had to keep his promises, he wouldn't litter his word with them. I think the fact that there are so many promises in God's word means that he is inviting us to believe them, daring us to stick our necks out and say, I'm gonna believe this. All the promises of God are an invitation from Jesus for you to take them and to believe them, to preach them to your heart, to cling to them, to build your hope on them, to be the dominant voice in your life, to be the main thing that you read and meditate upon. To quote uh, a theologian, you may have heard of him, his name is Brock Purdy. Um, He's a quarterback for the 49ers, if you didn't know. He recently said this, I'm going to keep my eyes on Jesus and his promises. That's life, and that's a life worth living. Keeping your eyes on Jesus and his promises, that's life. Ralph Davis said, nothing is more assuring than God's I will be with you. Nothing is more overwhelming than the fact it is God who says it. There's nothing more essential for the people of God than to hear their God repeating to them amid all their changing circumstances, I will be with you or I will not forsake you. That's what Yahweh did with Abram. Why? Because God loves to reassure his people with outlandish promises. So maybe you need this reminder from God today. I will be with you. Christian, God is saying that to you right now. I am will be with you. Or maybe you need this promise. I will not forsake you. And God is saying that to you right now, Christian. I will not forsake you. Or maybe you need the promise that lies behind Genesis chapter 13, verse 18, which says, and there Abram built an altar to Yahweh. This is now the third time that we read that Abram built an altar to Yahweh. The third time that he offers sacrifices to the Lord. Why? Because Abram was already aware of this promise from Hebrews 8.12. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. 
Maybe you need that promise today. Hear God saying to you this morning, Christian, I will be merciful toward your iniquities and I remember your sins no more. You can go through a lot and you can do a lot of stupid things with that promise. Let's pray. Jesus, we have done a lot of stupid things. And so our only hope is the gospel that's found here in Hebrews 8.12, that you are merciful, you don't give us what we deserve because of our sins, and then the fact that you remember them no more. It's like they don't exist, and it's all because of you. So whatever promise your people here this morning need, God, by your spirit, through your word, would you show it to them? Those who need to know that you will be with them, May they believe that. Those that need to know that you will not forsake them, may they believe that. Those who have gone and sinned and done a bunch of stupid things, Lord, may they remember that you are merciful and that you remember their sins no more. In Jesus' name, amen.